Good morning. It's good to be with you. I have missed you. It's good to be back. If you've got your Bibles, we want you to turn with us to the book of Job. That little book of Job, really, it's a big book that begins what we call the wisdom literature of the Bible. And if you're our listener of our podcast, on Fridays this month, we're going through the book of Job, talking about life lessons from the book of Job. We're going to look at a little study today from the book of Job. Delighted to have you with us. Delighted to have those who are watching us on live stream as well, as we kind of study God's Word and look at some things together, and we're glad we could do these things together. We have a lot of guests with us today. We love company here. We're glad you came. We hope you find us to be warm and welcoming, but we hope you find that you can connect with God as we are together today. Just a couple couples i got to mention to you because they mean so much to me. We have Ron and Jane Peck with us today. Ron and I grew up together in Indianapolis at the same congregation, and also we have Steve and Donna Jemison with us. Ron and Steve were elders in Kansas City when I preached there many years ago, and so good to have them with us today, and good to have each of you with us today as we come to encourage each other and think about the Word of God. Now, I don't normally talk about where I'm going to preach. I know a lot of preachers kind of say, hey, if you're in this area, I'm going to be preaching. I don't like to do that because it's kind of... Seems pretentious just a little bit, but something special coming up this Saturday. Uh, in 1791, this little log cabin church building was built outside of Lexington, Kentucky. Lexington, Kentucky, Paris, Kentucky, where our friend Bob Quinn is preaching. Outside of Paris, Kentucky is a little place called Cane Ridge. It was named because of sugar canes by Daniel Boone. He's the one that named that. This little log cabin church building was built in 1791. In 1801, there was a revival. Historians estimate between 20 and 40,000 people came to this. And this was just one of many sparks that started what we call the American Restoration Movement. So this Saturday, I get to speak in this log cabin. The church is going to be gathered there. We're going to be singing some hymns, and it's just cool in my book. So I just want to let you know about that. And if you've got nothing to do Saturday, come on, join, up, join with us. We'd love to have you. Well, let's get to preaching. The trial of the century. That's a common phrase we hear in a lot of different ways. The media swarms around the courthouse. Prosecutors and defense attorneys kind of battle it out before a jury of 12 people. The public is mesmerized by daily updates about what's taking place. It's the talk of the town. It's the talk of the century. In 1883, Lizzie Borden was tried for the axe murder of her father and stepmother. It's called the trial of the century. In 1925, in a little town in Tennessee, a high school teacher was arrested and tried for teaching evolution. It was called the Scopes Monkey Trial. It was deemed the trial of the century. After that, in 1935, the famed Charles Lindbergh had his infant son kidnapped and murdered. And it was called the trial of the century, the, kidna the Lindbergh kidnap trial. In our times, we think about the O.J. trial. And it was called the trial of the century. But long before that, there was a more important trial. There was no courthouse. There was no jury of 12. There was no prosecutors and defense attorneys. There was no judge. But it takes place in the book of Job. And in the book of Job, for 37 chapters, Job and his friends are talking about suffering. Why do people suffer? Who causes that? And those discussions become very heated. They start calling each other names, and it really falls apart very quickly. And what takes place near the end of this book is that we see that God is put on trial. 
In the book of Job in chapter 40, and verse 1 and 2, the Bible says, Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Fault finder is one who finds fault. I think that's some people's mission in life, isn't it? You always got somebody in your family who's finding fault. The fault finder is trying to accuse. He's trying to blame. He's trying to point the finger at. And then the word contend is a legal word. It means litigation. It means taking one to court. What Job is saying here is, as God's speaking to Job, is you're taking me to court. You're taking me on trial. Because of all the things that's happening, now you're putting me on the defense stand. It's interesting, the great writer C.S. Lewis said this. He said, ancient man approaches the gods as an accused person approaches his judge. But modern man reverses that role. Modern man acts like the judge and God is on trial. God must meet the approval of man and pass the judgment of man or else God is tossed out. God must explain himself why suffering exists. Why are there wars? Why does disease exist? Unless God adequately explains himself, he'll be discounted, discredited, and abandoned. And so this morning what we want to begin with is we want to talk about this concept of putting God on trial. Now we don't view it that way. And we don't mean to do this. But it comes about, first of all, when life does not turn out the way I expect it should turn out. There's rainbows and butterflies and waterfalls and mountains. All those are pretty. But they just kind of cover up the ugliness of life. There are wars. There are diseases. Young people do die. And we look at all those things around us and we see, why does that happen? How can we sing that song, God is so good, when we look at all these things and it doesn't seem very good? Now, if you're at home sitting in your easy chair and your child or your grandchild came walking in carrying the cat by the tail, you'd do something. Now, if that child later on went to the kitchen and got some matches and started flicking those matches and just throwing them in your front room, you would do something. If that child was beating up his little sister, you would do something. And what the world says is, why doesn't God do something? We've got things a lot worse, a lot more complicated than carrying a cat by the tail. And yet it seems like God doesn't do anything. And when we say the word why, why God? Why do I have cancer? Why did my parent die? Why did I lose my job? Why, God, we're putting him on trial? The psalmist says this way, why does I hide thy face and forget our affliction and our oppression? Or again, hear our prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears. I'm calling out to you, God, but you're not responding. Putting God on trial. I think the second way we do this is when the Bible simply doesn't read the way I think it should. I mean, the Bible's a fascinating book. There's stories that just seems incredible. Incredible stories. God stopping the sun. God parting oceans and rivers. And God doing all kinds of marvelous things that just seems to be too much. Shutting the mouths of lions. Opening prison doors. The, the message seems just to be too incredible to be true. It seems to be too good to be believed that the God of heaven is interested in you. Because you might say, the governor doesn't care about me. I know the president doesn't even know I'm alive. 
where I work, I wonder if they care about me. But to read that Bible to say the God of heaven cares about you. That's a message that's too good to be true. And then the moral ground seems too impractical for the world today. When you read the Bible at face value, same-sex marriage doesn't fit. When you read the Bible at, at face value, for all that it says, a worldly heart, a thirst for money, an indifference to the welfare of those around you just doesn't fit with what God wants. And when we look at this book, it seems like it's a book that's out of times. It's out of touch with our culture. It's different than our ways today. And what people say is, I want a God that I can love, but I want to love him the way I want to love him. I don't want somebody to tell me how I have to do that. And when that happens, we put God on trial. And then thirdly, we put God on trial when the church doesn't take care of all the needs of the world today. There's a lot of needs out there. And why doesn't the church take care of the wholeness of the individual? Why are there no weight loss classes? Why are there no self-help classes? Why are there no babysitting, daycare, this and that and this and that and on and on? Why doesn't the church pay for college tuition? Why doesn't the church involve in this and this? And I look at all these needs out there and I begin to wonder why doesn't God do this? God doesn't do what I think he ought to do. The Bible doesn't read the way I think it should read. And the church doesn't do what I think the church should do. And so what we do with that is say, I begin to wonder about all of this stuff. Now, if you got your Bible, let's go back to the book of Job. And let's notice, if you will, the outcome of this. And you'll need your Bible to look up these verses here because I've got several verses I want to run through real quickly. It begins, first of all, in chapter 38 of the book of Job. Well, there Job says, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is that that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man and I'll ask you and you instruct me. You're putting me on trial. You're taking me to court. You've got God on trial. God said, here's some questions for you, Mr. Job. Notice now verse 4. In verse 4, he says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God created. Where were you, Job? Well, he wasn't born. He wasn't there. He didn't know those things. Look in verse uh, 12 also of the same chapter. He says, have you ever in your life commanded the morning? Can you just by, by your very breath of your life say, you know what? It's time for now morning to begin. Or as Jesus did in Mark chapter 4, it's time for the storm to end. Can you command something and it happens? Mr. Job, you're putting me on trial. You're accusing me. You want to make me to go to court. I want to ask you a few questions. Look again what he says in verse 32 of the same chapter. In verse 32, can you lead forth a consolation in the season? Can you make the moon rise? Can you make the stars move? Can you do all of those things, he says. Chapter 39, verse 1, he says, do you know the time the mountain goat gives birth? You can just look at the verses up above there. Verse 34, can you, he says. Verse 35, can you, he says. Verse 39, can you, he says. Over and over, he's asking Job, do you have the power to do these things? And then in verse 27, he, of the same chapter, 
he says in this regard, he says, is it by your understanding the hawk soars? Or is it by your command the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? What he's emphasizing there is you're accusing me of these things. But I want you to understand, here's some simple things. Here's some things I can do in my sleep, and how are you going to deal with these? Now jump ahead, if you will, to chapter 42, and let's notice two verses. Job 42 and verse 3, after God asks a series of questions, I believe there's over 60 questions he asks him. He asks him about nature. He asks him about animals. He doesn't ask him the tough things. Those will come up in just a moment as I bring up some points here. But he asks him about simple things about nature. In chapter 42, verse 3, Job says, Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? God says, Therefore I have declared things that which I did not understand. He would say again, verse 5, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Shame on me for accusing you, God. Shame on me for pointing my finger at you. Shame on me, Job says, for thinking why. Shame on me for thinking you owe me an explanation. And then what we learn from this, we learn some truths that come out of this that helps us as we think about this concept. Truth number one is our personal happiness is not the main concern of the universe or even of heaven. Now, in our little world, it is. In our little world, we want happiness more than anything else, and we'll do anything to get our happiness. But in the big scheme of things, that's not the most important thing. Number two, God does not answer to us, but we answer to him. Notice how it's stated in the book of Romans, chapter 9. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? We ought to just stop there. That's a real question, isn't it? Who am I to say why? A lot of us remember when we were teenagers, we answered back to our parents. I used to mumble things under my breath. I got pretty good at mumbling. And my mother would always say, what is that you're saying? But what the passage says is, who are you? Who are you to talk back to God? Who are you to demand things of God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? You see, God has made you. Why are you female? Why are you male? Why are you living in this time? Why are you living in this generation? Why are some of you wired to be shy? Why are you some of you wired to be just so outgoing you don't know a stranger? Why are you that have this insight? Why do you have this talent? Why did God make you? Why did you make me the way I am, God? The pot doesn't say that to the potter. The pot doesn't have that right to say that. Or does the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use. If God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. So again, it reminds us that God does not answer to us. We answer to God. Number three, God does not need our approval or our permission, but we need his. Remember Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's getting God's approval. That's why when we do things, we have to look in our Bible to make sure it's wise. Why? Because we need God's approval. God doesn't have to have your approval. God didn't tell any of us, hey, you know what, on, on the 
third day of October, I'm going to make it rain. It's going to be a Sunday morning. How do you all feel about that? I would say, no, God, not on Sunday. Now, let, let, let's let it rain on Monday. He didn't ask me. He never will ask me because he doesn't have to ask me. Number four, God has a much larger perspective than we do. And again, when we think about these questions he asked Job, about mountain goats and about eagles and about stars and about the foundations of the sea, simple things about nature. How about the deeper things, such as why do you send the rain upon the righteous and the unrighteous? Why do you do that? Or how about Hebrews 9.27? It is a point of man wants to die. Who here in this building, among the family we love, would like to have that decision, I have to decide when you're going to die. I wouldn't want that job. I wouldn't want that. What a difficult choice that would be. That's in the hands of God. How about when do you send Jesus and you end all of this? And there's going to be no more except the judgment. Or how about how much mercy do you have? See, when Job was putting God on trial, all he thought about was his physical life. My children have died. I lost all my possessions. I'm suffering health problems. That's all I see. He never saw the bigger perspective that God deals with. And God has a purpose much greater than our purpose. And then number six, God does things that are beyond us. In that little Old Testament book of Habakkuk, there was a time when the prophet wondered, why are there so much injustice? Why don't you do something? Very similar to what's asked today. Why don't you do something? And God responds by saying, look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days. You would not believe it if I told you. And here we are. Why ain't God doing something about this pandemic? He probably is. You just don't know it. Why doesn't God do something with racism? Well, he probably is. You don't even know it. Why God doesn't God do this? Because it's beyond you, and you can't see outside our little circle. So throughout your life, God is testing you. We are not to test God, but God tests us. Example of this is found in John chapter 6, when we think about Jesus preparing to feed the 5,000, the multitudes. Therefore, Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread that, these, that so many may eat? He was saying this to test him. Jesus knew what he was going to do. There's a big crowd. M Matthew's account says there's 5,000 men, not counting women and children. 10,000, 20,000, who knows how many people there. And he says to Philip, what are we going to do? Philip saw the problem. He never saw the solution. And what Jesus is doing this was to test him. And what Philip should have thought is, well, you know what? We don't have enough money. There's no 7-Eleven in our days. But you know what? I've seen you calm the storms. I've seen you heal the sick. I've seen you raise the dead. I don't know what we're going to do, but we got you. We got you. But Philip never said that. And we remember in the book of Matthew, when Jesus sent the disciples into the boat to go to the other side, he went up to pray. He wasn't with them. And a storm came about, and they got very, very scared. It was at this occasion where Peter 
sees Jesus walking on the water and asks to walk on the water as well. But this was the test. I'm not going to be with you. And here comes a storm. And what are you going to do? They were, they were just getting scared and losing it rather than thinking, Lord, we pray to you. Lord, we reach out to you. All through your life, you're going to be tested. The testing of your obedience, the testing of your faithfulness and loyalty, the testing of your commitment. And I believe one of the ways the Lord does that is through the people in your life. God puts certain people in your family, in your life. And it's a test. Will I avoid them and ignore them? Will I forgive them as they deserve? Will I treat them as Jesus would? Or will I kind of hold my nose up and not do anything with these people? You see, that's a test. Do you really have the heart that I want you to have? Do you have the character that I want you to have? Do you really get what I'm trying to tell you? And here's a test. Oh, I got a co-worker. And oh, she drives me nuts. And I got this co-worker, and I just, I'm going to find another job. Maybe the Lord is testing you with that person. It's just somebody in my family. You know, there's in-laws and there's outlaws. And that's how it is. Sometimes God does this through the challenges in your life. There's difficulties, there's challenges, and, and then there are things, disappointments and difficulties. And all these things come about. And what they are is they're a test of our faith. To understand, will I do what God wants me to do? Will I be faithful? Will I hang in there? You see, it's not us testing God. It's not us putting God on trial. But what happens is God puts us on trial. And one thing we learn from this, as we go back to the word of God, is that one cannot reject the Bible without rejecting God. We live in a culture today that says, I'll take God, but I'll not take that Bible. I like God, but I don't like the way the Bible reads. And to understand, you cannot be right with God and wrong with the Bible. The Lord said in John chapter 12, He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. You want God, you've got to take God's word together. And then secondly with this, one cannot reject part of the Bible without rejecting all the Bible. That was the problem that Galatians had. Galatians chapter 5, Paul brings that up. They wanted to go back to the old law and just pull out circumcision. But Paul says if you go back and pull out circumcision, you've got to pull out the whole law. That includes sacrifices. That includes going to Jerusalem. That includes not having Jesus and salvation. You can't pick and choose. It's not like a pizza. You know how it is when you get the kids and you put out pizza and somebody says, Oh, I don't like pepperoni. Well, just pick it off. And that's what we do, don't we? Oh, I don't do mushrooms. Pick it off. And that's what we do with the Bible. Well, oh, I don't do that verse. Well, just pick it off. No, you don't pick it off. You pick it off, you're losing it. It's either all the Bible or it's none of the Bible. Then number three, if we reject the Bible, we reject something that Jesus believed in. What did he do when he was tempted in Matthew 4? He went to the Bible. What happens in Matthew 19 when he was tested by the Pharisees about divorce? He went to the Bible. In Matthew 22 when he was tested about the, the Sadducees and resurrection, he went to the Bible. And he's walking on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. What did he do? He went back to the word of God. From Moses to the prophets, he showed that he was the son of God. To reject the Bible is to reject what Jesus believed in. And that's never going to fly. And then to reject the Bible is thrown away the only hope we have of knowing Jesus and being saved. And that again shows us how serious that is. Spurgeon said this, he says, I would recommend you either believe God up to the hilt or else not to believe in him at all. 
Believe this book of God, every letter of it, or else reject it all. There is no logical standing in between those two grounds. So God's not on trial. That's what Job learned. I cannot put God on trial because he who he is. He has demonstrated his kindness through blessings. And every one of us, every one of us have been blessed by God. And he's offered every one of us a second chance. He doesn't do it to just a small group of people. He doesn't say, just you people over here get a second chance. The rest of you, you blew it. He doesn't do that. He sent the best of heaven that was Jesus. He didn't send an angel. He didn't create something. He sent God himself. He sent Jesus to die for our sins. And then all around you, he has put people, people to help you, to show you, to guide you. People in this very room today that remind you how you need to walk with God every single day. So it's not God who's on trial, but it's us. Every single day, the choices you make, driving down the road, and here's this guy, just gets you irritated. That's a test. Am I going to do what Jesus wants me to do, or am I going to show myself to be like one of somebody who doesn't know Jesus? Here's somebody at work, and they just irritate me. Here's somebody in the family, and they irritate me. Here's somebody in the church, and they irritate me. And what we see is all around us, Satan puts these dangly trinkets in front of our eyes. We get our eyes off of Jesus. And what happens when we do that? We're just like Eve, who listened to that serpent. That serpent never did one thing for Eve. Never blessed her, never helped her, never did anything. Everything God had done... Eve forgot when she started talking to that serpent. And that serpent talks to us today by saying, you need to do this. You need to follow that. And when we do this, we walk away from the God of heaven and of earth. And so what Job learned in a great sense was that I cannot put God on trial. I cannot demand that God tell me why these things happen. I need to see that he's looking at me and saying, am I walking every day by faith? Am I making the right choices he wants me to make? Stories told of this college professor who despised God. Could not stand that. And of all things, just like college, makes no sense. He was teaching a theology class. Teaching theology, and he didn't believe in God. And he was very harsh about God. He thought the whole concept of God was a myth. So the first day of class, he just chose one of the students. William, go over to the window. William walked over to the window, very obedient. Do you see any trees? Yes, I see trees. Do you see any grass? Yes, I see grass. Do you see a sky? Yes, I see sky. Do you see God? He said, no, I don't see God. And the professor said, see, I told you. Another student raised his hand. Can I ask William the same questions? Go ahead. William, back to the window. William, do you see any trees? Yes, I see trees. See any grass? Yes, I see grass. Do you see a sky? Yes, I see sky. Do you see God? No, I don't see God. Do you see the professor? Yes, I see the professor. Do you see his head? Yes, I see his head. Do you see his brain? No, I don't see his brain. And the point was kind of made. We need to see that heaven is the world we're going for. Heaven has no tears. We have tears. Heaven has no mourning. We have mourning. Heaven has no death. We have death. Heaven has no pain. 
we have pain. People do not understand that through suffering, we can learn things. Sometimes in the darkness, you see the farthest. That prodigal would have never come home had he not gone to the pigs. And sometimes God allows you to go to the pigs to wake you up, to make you look at what, where are you headed? What choices are you making in life? Where do you think this road's going to end? And sometimes that road can be hard. And sometimes that road can be ugly. But God will allow those things to get us back to where we need to be. And I think Job, as you read the very last few verses of the book of Job, realized how wonderful, how powerful, how mighty and holy our God is. And that's where we need to be. We live in a culture today that want to toss God out. We live in a time today where people say, well, you know what? I used to believe in God, but you know what? I got in a fender bender last week, and I don't believe in God anymore. Or you know what? I lost my job, or my dog died, so I don't believe anymore in God. And we just say things like that. And we need to realize the goodness of your life is not the measure of God. And talk about how important he is in our life. As, we say, as it was read by Jimmy a while ago, where would we be? without the Lord. Have you ever just stretched that thought? What if there never was a God? We wouldn't be here this morning, would we? We wouldn't be here. What if there was no God? What would you have to look forward to? Getting old, sitting in a nursing home and eating applesauce? That's a great end to the story, isn't it? What if there was no God and you really messed up? But you don't know about forgiveness. You don't know about grace. You don't know about apologies. What if there was no God? Wonder how many marriages you've gone through by now if there was no guidance by God. If there was no God, wonder what addictions you'd have right now. The bottle can be very appealing. Pills can be very attractive. What if there was no God? Would you be behind bars, the things you did that against society what if there was no God would you even be alive today and that's just this side of things you think about the other side of things if there was no God the cemetery is the end of the story there is a the end to our story as we've talked over and over about that door of death that door is locked if there is no God once death happens that's it but praise be we know there's a God we're going to talk about that just a little bit more in our Bible class in the auditorium here. And because of that, we change our lives. Because of that, we walk by faith. Because of that, when life slaps us in the face, we know he's still there. We know he still loves us. We know he's still right. You see, Job had to learn things. And I believe you and I do as well. This morning, if you're not a Christian, you need to become one. You need to be one of God's. You need to walk with him. Walk with him by faith. And I believe throughout your life, things will happen to you. Sometimes God's just testing you. I'm going to see what you do here. Are you going to still be faithful to me? Or are you going to say, oh, it's raining outside and I can't go to church because it's raining. But man, I got tickets to the ball game this afternoon. I'll be there. That's a test, isn't it? A little test. Somebody said something ugly to me at church, so I'll never come back again. Maybe that's just a little test, isn't it? All these people we got to pray for. What's wrong with this group? They're just sick as they can be. Maybe it's a little test. 
faithfulness. Test, test, test. And maybe what the God of heaven is saying is, I'm here. Do you believe in me? Let's see this. If you've never been baptized, you need to. Once you come forward now, let's stand as we